everyone! Welcome to Totally Tubular, the TV.com podcast. Today, through the magic of the internet, is Thursday, May 12th, 2016. My name is Tim, I'm the host, and as always, I am here with my co-host, the wonderful Corey Barker. Corey, tell everyone what is going on with you. There's a lot of things going on with me, Tim. I have breaking news. Uh, totally Tubular has been renewed for another season. It has. That's news to me. I know. Well, I got the call first. You know, they they call the A list talent first. Then they kind of call the you know the B list and down below. So um, our interns will get will get the call sometime over the weekend. Uh, Did less less call you yeah. directly, Mr. Moonves, as I like to call him, because you know I'm a professional. gave me gave me a little ring and let me know that uh, we have been renewed. Unfortunately, we are going to have to move production. Uh, to a warehouse in Vancouver, <laughs> and our budget has been uh, slashed from nine dollars to four fifty. So we're gonna make, you know, we're gonna, <laughs> gonna do more with less, but you know, we get another year. So, what, I make four fifty per podcast. So does that mean you're you're doing it pro bono now? You know, I'm just doing it for the art. That's that's who I am, and that's the sacrifice I make for the for the listeners and the fans out there. Uh, but man, we're getting ever closer to upfronts, which means. So much of this podcast is going to be dedicated to talking about shows that have been picked up, pilots that have been ordered, shows that may get canceled, and a lot of craziness involving the broadcast networks. Well, let's start with the first move made by one of the networks. Uh, This was Fox, who just this week ordered six new series. Uh, They don't have their upfront until, uh, I don't know which day, I think it's a a week from from Tuesday or so. Um... But they ordered six series. You ready? You ready? You ready to hear them? I'm ready. Here we go. The Lethal Weapon remake. I think that was a uh, shoe in. That's going to star Clay Crawford of Rectify as Martin Riggs and Damon Wayne Senior from In Living Color as Roger Murtaugh. Um, pretty safe bet that this was going to get uh, ordered. I don't see any problem with this. I think um, I'm even kind of looking forward to it. I'm inter- Yeah, I'm definitely interested to see it because. The premise is sturdy enough, and the actors seem good enough that it could be fine. Like, even if it's not as good as the films, it could just be a decent TV show. Spoiler alert, it won't be as good as the films. I'm just going to go go out on a limb right there. What are the chances that they would ever get Mel, Mel Gibson to show up here on this show? <laughs> Zero? I put it at 0.5%. Because Fox would never ask him, or because he would never do it? Uh, be I just think I think Gibson's got a little ways to go. He's on the apology tour. Man, I feel like that apology tour has been going on for years. Oh, he did appear at an award show recently, didn't he? And he was Golden fine. Globes. Yeah, oh, <laughs> the Globes. Well, so, I mean, I, award I, I, show. Sorry, I thought it was an actual award show. <laughs> yeah. He's got to do the Teen Choice Awards next, and then People's Choice. We'll see. <laughs> Fox also picked up The Exorcist, which is based on that movie that scared everyone's pants off in the 70s. Uh, I think it was the 70s. Mm-hmm. And uh, this one also seemed like a safe bet. Um, de- Demonic Possession is hot right now. <laughs> Demonic Possession and time travel, I think, are two of the biggest trends in this year's pilot season we need to make a show about a time traveling demon who possesses people in the past or a time traveling like demon hunter perhaps you know sort of like a constantine meets doctor yeah. who that's the guy who chases him around time yeah perfect we'll call it time demon by the way les moonves is on the line he's already ordered that we're good <laughs> next all right so way to go Les. uh next show is apb it's a chicago set series uh talks it's about cops 
Uh, sure, why not? Um, uh, Justin Kirk plays a tech billionaire, and he reboots the system, the police system, with a private police force. Does this uh, sound like anything you want to watch? Ooh, a corporate-backed, perhaps even Silicon Valley-backed police system, and it's not like a B-plot on Silicon Valley. No thanks. <laughs> no, we'll skip this one. Uh, next up is Pitch. This comes from Dan Fogelman, and it's about the first female pitcher in the major leagues. She comes up and throws some heat for the San Diego Padres. Um, this is stupid, right? Uh, I cannot believe that this was an idea, let alone an actual show. I mean, how often do shows based around sports like this ever succeed? It's it's so rare, and this has such a novelty premise that I can't imagine if people will watch it. But hey, it's different, at least. <laughs> different it is. It's, you know, kind of, kind of like back in the game, but I think it's a drama. I don't know about this one, guys. Pitch. I love baseball, too, and uh, I don't know. Uh, next up, let's go to the comedies. Making History. This is a Told false you. time travel, single camera comedy from Phil Lord and Chris Miller, who make everything nowadays. It stars Adam Pally, Leighton Meester, and Yasser Lester as three friends from different countries who have to balance their adventures through time with the boring crap of their present-day lives. Those are the words right out of Caitlin's story. Um, sure, why not? Time traveling comedy? Sure. Time traveling bong, there's hot tub time machine. Why not this one? I, I want to know what prop makes them time travel. That's the important thing. Yeah, and we also got the Mick, which finally uh, Caitlin Olsen from It's Always in Sun Sunny in Philadelphia is getting a major role in a network sitcom, which, you know, I think she's always been one of those people who I've always wanted to see Emmy nominated. But uh, I don't know, is she going to be able to do both? It's Always Sunny? Because, you know, It's Always Sunny is going to go for 28 seasons or something like well, that. Well, I mean, it's probably likely that this gets canceled. Um, <laughs> you know, so maybe she only has to do both for one year. Not not that the show will get canceled, like, early next season because nothing on Fox could do <laughs> so poorly to get canceled. I would just like to say really quickly here before we move on that among – so you add the Prison Break revival and then the Jack Bowerless 24 to this, four of Fox's drama pilots or drama series for next year – are franchise related and keep it going we saw how that worked out for them over the last couple of years so good job by you and even the exorcist really quickly we saw that when they tried to do rosemary's baby for tv which nbc did it didn't really capture the film's energy and of course we talked about a while ago now i guess the the real glory of a&E's Damien? Was it A&E? I think it's A&E. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes, it was. Which was one of the worst things I've ever seen. So I just, why do you people think that this is, like, the franchise aside, why is this a good idea to try to do on a weekly TV show? I don't know, but you know what? The Of the two, of the two dramas that they picked up, the Brandon ones seem like the more interesting ones. They really do, which I guess says a lot <laughs> about their uh, network develop, or pilot development. But Indeed. anyway... Indeed. Uh, let's move on to more news. CBS renewed Life in Pieces. That's the first of its freshman series that it has renewed. There's word uh, word is still out on Supergirl and Limitless and Code Black and uh, Rush Hour, although we can assume that's dead. Uh, I think there's one more I'm forgetting. But, um, yeah, Life in Pieces, I think this was a safe bet coming back for Season 2. Uh, real quickly on Supergirl, there's more talk that this could move not just to Vancouver but over to the CW I uh, I want it to stay on CBS because I think CBS needs it. But uh, what do you think? 
Yeah, we talked about this last week, and I think we both just assumed that there'd be some kind of contractual debate uh, negotiations about what would happen and maybe a budget decrease and stuff like that. And soon after we recorded, the first sort of story came out that that was what it was happening, and now there's more scuttlebutt about actually moving it to the CW. I don't know. I mean, it seems like a not necessarily a lose-lose proposition for all parties involved because, you know, you want to see people keep their jobs, and it's a show with a lot of potential, but... I would like to see the CW do more things as opposed to just fill their schedule with uh, Berlanti-produced superhero shows. And like you implied, we would like to see CBS continue to try to do things that aren't just generic procedurals. Like the report today about Supergirl noted that Code Black is almost assured to get another season. And then Supergirl is up in the air and Limitless is also up in the air too. So it seems like CBS is kind of leaning backwards a little bit and going with the safe route as far as the things it's going to order and the things it's going to cancel. Uh, Oh, boy, this one. Sci-Fi has ordered Krypton. Uh, This was reported in 2014 first, but now they've officially ordered a pilot for Krypton, which is about Superman's grandfather. Mmm. That that famous story that we've all been told over and over again. Uh, Superman's grandfather... (laughs) Super Grandpa. How many jokes in the first episode will there be about how Krypton will never fail, how it's the most successful and like flourishing planet in the solar system? Is the over-under set at 5 or 10? Well, I mean, I, I would assume that this is going to be so serious there will be nothing funny about it and it will be a total uh, bore to watch. Are you suggesting that because David Goyer is involved? <laughs> Partially that, partially because it's sci-fi, partially because it's Superman's grandfather. Right. Yeah, I mean, his his genetic or his, like, self-seriousness and unwillingness to be funny has to come from somewhere, right? <laughs> so it's probably genetic. Like, yeah. this this is worse than Gotham um, as far yes. as the sort of prequel series associated with intellectual property or famous characters go. Imagine if Gotham were just about Bruce Wayne's parents. Like, not about anybody else, but just about his parents uh, building up their company. Going uh, to the theater, walking down, walking in alleys. Yeah. Every every week they just went to a movie again, and we wondered, will this be the week they get killed? <laughs> uh, last up, ABC also made a move. They picked up a designated survivor, which is uh, Jack Bauer, but not Jack Bauer as president. Kiefer Sutherland as uh, Secretary of Agriculture or something. Mm-hmm. He, he uh, everyone above above him dies, and he becomes the president in a terrorist attack. Sure. Is it going to be weird that Twenty Four is going to be on, and then ABC is basically going to be running like Earth Two Twenty Four as well um, with Kiefer Sutherland? What are the chances those two air on the same night? Oh, I hope so. I hope someone does a mashup of them, and it's just like. You know, somebody in 24 talking to the president, and you just cut in Kiefer Sutherland as the president talking back to them. I love that looking at the quick 20 or like 20 second trailer that Kiefer Sutherland's like acting choice to make this character look uh, a little dweeby is to just wear glasses. Like by episode six, he's just gonna be Jack Bauer esque, right? But he's gonna have glasses on, so that's the character development that he was a nerd at first and then became Jack Bauer. I think he has a college sweatshirt on. Too Cornell. He went to Cornell. He barely. He barely went to an Ivy League school. Oh, wow. There goes, there goes the Cornell audience. 
Um, and let's get on to some boring business news. We love to talk about the boring business news. Amazon is going after YouTube by allowing uh, user uploads. I think last week we talked about how these companies are you know, trying to do too much. Mm-hmm. Whereas like Hulu was trying to be more like Netflix instead of really being the uh, you know the, the DVR as as like as we said in the cloud. But uh, do you think the same thing here with Amazon? I don't know. I mean, I think Amazon is such a weird company as far as like its role in television because they haven't quite established themselves in the same way that even Hulu has, and so. And because they have all these other, like, businesses associated with it, like, it's a more interesting idea that they're going to allow, you know, individuals from just random users to, like, stars that they've courted who were on YouTube previously to upload content in this new service called Amazon Video Direct, you know, that they have... This process that they bought Twitch, which, you know, people use to live stream as they play games and stuff like that, so they have this weird, like, branded ecosystem that is clearly going to be there to like direct you to buy stuff so um you know as you watch somebody upload a video that they've done of them playing some game or something like that and you'll immediately be able to buy the game right and then you could upload your own video playing it and so there's this weird more clear circular logic involving products non like you know video products i think is interesting but it still implies that Again, all these companies are just trying to kind of compete with one another without a complete directed identity. I'd say you nailed it, Corey. Yeah. I, I wouldn't want to watch Twitch video and then just like be able to buy the game right away. I, you, you need the time to process this a purchase. Well, I don't think people. I don't think that's in Amazon's mo. Given that they just love. It's not called one click for you know for nothing, man. They want you to be able to one click everything. Yes, yes, they do. Uh, we don't have a lot of shows to talk about this week because Upfronts is going on, uh, finales are going on, sweeps are going on, so not a lot of new shows, but we wanted to check in with one, the one that basically we had access to, the one that really the only high-profile uh, new show came out uh, this week. It's it's Chelsea. It's Chelsea Handler's talk show. It's um, it's kind of a new uh, thing for Netflix where they're getting into the talk show business, and they have they to do three episodes a week. Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, and it is Chelsea Handler who left, you know, she left E! and uh, Chelsea Lately in kind of a a big huff to do her own thing, and she signed a deal with uh, Netflix and did some uh, sort of documentary shorts or documentary uh, episodes of things, and now this is the, I think this was the real project that they were going after her for it's a it's a talk slash variety show uh only one episode was released and it was released at midnight i think last night and uh or two nights ago um chris martin was on from coldplay he opened it up and starting guess, hot bringing yeah. out the big guns early yes and also talk about a big gun secretary of education uh, I don't remember his name. And then there's Drew Barrymore and Pitbull. So if this is the quality of guests that Chelsea's going to get. And, you know, usually for the first episode of a show, they get, you know, George Clooney or someone. They get someone big. But this is who they're starting off with, Corey. This is who they're starting off with. I have a one big question for you. Yeah. Did you actually finish this episode? Be honest. Uh, I, I did. Okay. I did. I can't guarantee you that I gave it 100% of my attention. So I made it to about a minute 12 <laughs> and then just read some people's thoughts about some of the later segments. And 
I think we said last week at the end of the episode that we were not looking forward to this. This is not for us, right? I think we should preface that because I don't think we're going to be kind. So we should say that this is not really a show for us. We often talk about shows that are totally tailored for you and I. This is not one of them. And I thought it was pretty bad. It's terrible. It's really bad. It's not, you know, it's not for us because it's only for one person in the world. And that's Chelsea Handler. This is (laughs) such a vanity project for her. It is ridiculous. She brings out the Secretary of Education to come and talk about, you know, I guess they had kind of an education topic for this first show. She brought him out and had him read her like basic high school geography questions to see if she could get them right. And that was kind of what they did. Like he, she always brings the focus back on her. Like she's not a good talk show host. I think she has a lot of supporters. Um, you know, like Drew Barrymore was fawning over her and they loved her. But um, if you are not into Chelsea Handler and her idea that she's some sort of god among mortals, then I can't see why anyone would get any value out of this at all. Right, but I think that the thing is, is there is a group of people, particularly women, I think, um, who do really like her. But I found, you know, I've even found, I've watched full episodes of Chelsea lately, for instance, and not love them, but also not dislike them to the degree that I dislike this. I found this to be, you know, first episodes are always a little rough, right? Even, you know, a show like this that's been in development for a while, surely they did a number of test shows like they do for any late night show. And I found the opening monologue to be really flat. I felt like the incessant like praise of netflix for allowing her to do it was like it it didn't even get to the point of being on the nose like it felt completely earnest that she was just really excited that netflix let her do quote unquote the show she wanted to do but i really don't appreciate watch if i i've already chosen to watch your show i don't need to hear you talk about how great the network or the streaming platform is and then the first pre-tape segment is a really bad kind of riff on how netflix can provide an education for you and it's just features like netflix stars i don't know it was very bizarre and self-congratulatory even for netflix not just chelsea handler herself later on they take some shots at netflix because like the algorithms the suggestion the suggestions for you algorithms and stuff but um it was very much like it was sometimes like an ad for netflix which is really weird. And then when it wasn't that, it was an ad for Chelsea Handler, which is just totally obnoxious. Uh, I, I, I don't, I, I just, I don't like her. <laughs> I really just don't like her. And I guess she's, she's just one of those celebrities that, you know, is you either like or you don't, or most people don't like, I think. Um, but some people really, really, really like her because she's, you know, she's a strong woman. She likes to talk about sex. She curses a lot, and she curses a lot in the in the uh, premiere. And uh, I don't know; it, it just it just doesn't sit well with me because I don't find her personally very funny. And I think you know her strength from being on Chelsea Lately, for instance, is a show where it was so clearly tailored to her, and then the other people were kind of panelists who bounced off of her. And in this scenario, where you're asked to be, where she's asked to be a little bit more of a steward and a host and kind of get into it with people, other people, you know, for one episode, it's not a huge deal. You know, I understand exactly where you're coming from, that it was all about her, but she doesn't really appear to have like really great hosting skills either. So it's sort of weird that the show would be so clearly tailored 
or constructed as a late night show with those kind of interviews and stuff like that if that's not a skill she can really do because on Netflix you can do whatever you want she really should have expanded things a little more but she didn't I mean she she has a, a monologue and then she has guests come out and then it's kind of over but yeah, if you have this Netflix model where you can do different things, presumably they gave her a lot of money. It did not appear that way. Um, the production of it was pretty pretty bad. Um, so yeah, like why wouldn't you do more if you could do more? Especially if you're someone like Chelsea Handler who wants to push the envelope. Mm-hmm. You do it by more. You do it more by doing more than just like dropping the F word several times. Yeah, yeah. or talking more explicitly about sex or something like that. Thinking for Netflix a little bit, do you do you think this is? I mean, again, we never know, but I guess, do you think that this is a worthy experiment for them? No, I don't. I don't know why they would get into a late night show. I don't think it fits in with everything else that they do. If their whole thing is about on demand and they want things to be, you know, kind of evergreen and last forever, I don't know why you would get into late night and I don't know why you would spend all this money on it um so I, I just think it was, a, it was kind of it was an experiment this was kind of their their shot at doing something uh quote unquote live I suppose um and I just think it's not it's not gonna work that's a great point I mean the episodes are taped on Monday Tuesday Wednesday and then air Wednesday Thursday Friday so you know the episode that we saw was taped this Monday and if you're gonna do the late show format then you are in some ways bound by temporality right that you are bound by making jokes and references to things that are happening in real time to some degree and so not only are things a couple of days late um, when you're if you're watching it live on netflix quote unquote but then if the queue builds up and you you know miss six episodes or whatever how worthwhile are those things once a week two weeks three weeks have passed right and that begins to completely contradict what Netflix is trying to do. And so in that regard, the show probably needs to move further away from the late night format and not worry about telling like relevant jokes about what Donald Trump did this week. Right. Because in, in six months, who knows if those are even remotely funny? Um, heck in six weeks, who knows if they're remotely funny uh, to us, they weren't funny at all this time, but you know, so like it, it doesn't seem like the format really matches up with Netflix's overall goals, even if this is an experiment. The one, the one cool thing she did is uh, she had her dog on set. That's new. I've never seen that. It was a cute dog. Yeah, it's a cute dog. Anyway, that's Chelsea. I think I don't think we need to talk about this anymore. Mm-mm. Chelsea is on Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. It premiered this week. You can uh, watch it on Netflix, but you don't need to. And I don't think anyone really will. I don't think her documentaries did well. I think Netflix is probably like, oh, God, what did we do? Can you think of a uh, late-night personality who might fit better into the Netflix mold? I don't know, because, I mean, you could pick out some big names. I mean, you could have said they should have went after Jon Stewart after he left Comedy Central, but his his style of hosting and performance is so based on current events that that would have the same problem, right? So you would need someone... Like, that's why this doesn't really work. It needs to be more of a a sketch show as opposed to, like, a late-night show. Or if it's going to be an interview show, it needs to be interview in a way that's not, like, super timely. So you don't bring on people who have something, like, coming out immediately. Um, or you don't do an entire monologue bit about the election or whatever. Yeah. Uh, now we're going to cut away to a fantastic conversation 
between Corey and Noel discussing The Good Wife, which ended its series run on Sunday. I imagine that you and Noel were sitting in front of a fireplace in smoking jackets, sipping some cognac while talking about this. Is that right, Corey? That's almost exactly what happened, yeah. It's good, good visualization for everybody. Everyone think about that while you listen to this. Okay, we're joined now by TV.com's favorite staff writer, uh, the most intelligent and probably most physically attractive uh, TV.com staff Wait, writer. Wait, Nick's on? Yeah, yeah, didn't you know? Uh, <laughs> it's Noel Kirkpatrick. Noel, how's it going? It's going really well today, Corey. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. I'm I'm a little conflicted because I'm happy to talk to you. I'm happy to talk to you about a show that you and I have enjoyed discussing with one another for a long time. But it's the end of that show, and the ending of that show was a little disappointing, or perhaps very disappointing, depending on who you ask. And that's what we'll do today. We're here to talk about The Good Wife, which of course wrapped up its full series run this past Sunday on CBS. Uh, with a unsurprisingly titled end, um, written by Robert King and Michelle King, of course, and directed by Robert. Um, so, Noel, you wrote about the finale. You wrote about the entire season for TV.com. Almost. Um, I think I missed like three or four episodes. You missed, yes. You yeah. missed a few because they weren't worth writing about, really. They weren't, you know. Yeah, I think and that's that, fair. <laughs> and that's, what we, that's really kind of what we want to start with. We'll talk about end uh, quite a bit here. But let's start with season seven in general right i think the the general assumption about the show is that it's been on a little bit of a decline since the end of season five early season six and we've talked about that a little bit on the show uh over the last year or so so what about season seven as a whole leading up to this series finale what what did you think the show did well didn't do well kind of stumbled around with general thoughts on season seven well i think that the big takeaway for season seven is that it really wanted to get to the point where the finale made sense. And I'm doing air quotes because I don't think the show actually got there. But I do think that there was this large impulse throughout season seven to do what I ended up describing as kind of like a grab bag approach. Um, But I think the more likely um, analogy is more of a a um like mixtape or sampling or remixing of itself basically uh it took a lot of things that it had done well in the past and then decided to do them all together and do like riffs on these ideas and in a in a in a a way that they felt like i think that they felt like was going to achieve some sense of closure some sense of plot symmetry or narrative symmetry or just some sort of like Full circleness, basically. Uh, I, I understand that symmetry and full circleness aren't the same thing, but a circle is symmetrical. So it, I think it, it is indeed yes, right. It kind of works. Um, but no, so I think that there was a big impulse to try and make things feel like the show was doing a lot of its greatest hits. So we got an election, we got a scandal, uh, we had law firm politics, uh, we. And then there were just a lot of cases that kind of comment on it, most noticeably being the music rights case, which felt very much like an acknowledgement that the show was riffing on itself. And so all of that was kind of okay for the most part. I mean, this this season was nowhere near as doldrummy as the post-Carrie's-not-actually-going-to-jail stuff from season six where the show just 
focused on Alicia's election um, that made very little sense and only yielded occasionally interesting episodes. Um, but I think it was a more consistent season than season six. It just wasn't a very good season. It had really bright spots. Party, which I referenced right off the top, is probably the season's best episode, but it's also the most fan y episode. So that kind of tells you, and you know, and I've mentioned this before in other reviews, um, that I'm not a big fan service person, so that I'm saying that an episode that felt pretty fan service-y was probably the best one that they did, uh, says a lot about where I felt most of the episodes this season were. were. Um, so what about you? Um, I know that you didn't watch the sh- this season pretty consistently, if at all. I know you watched the finale so that you and I could talk about it. But, like, how much of this season had you watched? What were your feelings about it? And if you didn't watch a whole lot, why did you decide to stop? So I watched the... I actually looked it up on Wikipedia as I was prepping for this. I watched the first three of this season, having having not watched uh, probably since, like, the 10th or 11th episode of last season. uh, Because, like you, I was kind of disappointed with how they wrapped up really neatly wrapped up Carrie's uh potential prison stint I felt like that was one of the last great ideas the show had other than let's do another election story or let's do another firm politic merger hire fire sort of story and so I saw the first three and then the last one um so they were interesting kind of bookends and I think a big part of the reason why I stopped watching the show is something that I'm sure that we'll talk about more is that it just it, it wasn't that the show ran out of ideas. I think that it's the the fifth season in particular is looked at as, you know, probably the best show best season for the show, or at least like the most exciting season for the show. And that season had a lot of propulsion to it. It had obviously a significant death. It just felt more heightened than some of the other seasons because it had all of this history to it and then all of these sort of things were crumbling around Alicia and all the other characters and then it felt like the show looked at that and realized oh that's a thing that we can do like we can really just keep mixing it up as repeatedly and as many number of times as possible and that's what people like about this show they like when everybody kind of changes jobs or rejoins a firm or leaves a firm or there's another election story and I think in that regard, the show went down a slightly wrong path where they thought that that's why people really enjoyed the fifth season when in reality so much of that was based on all of the history and the slow kind of build to that, getting to those episodes in the fifth season. And then once you you know, remove Will from the equation and you have you know, Diane, Diane, Carrie, and Alicia sort of turn on each other and then come back together so many times, like... There's just a law of diminishing returns there, and I think by the time it got to another election story about Alicia, I was not that interested. And I think at the beginning of this season, I thought that the show was fine, but it just no longer felt essential, and it just felt so much like they were really trying to regain some semblance of consistency, which you sort of alluded to, that it wasn't as you know dull in parts as season six, but it just didn't really have that energy and I think the show just became one of those things that I didn't have the desire to really keep up with it you know there wasn't that those episodes that were happening that was like oh I really need to stay with this show as there were in seasons five 
and even early in season six. And I think that that's why I dropped out. So, you know, how would you sort of, you know, diagnose exactly what went wrong with the show coming out of the fifth season? Because I, I know you would agree that the fifth season was very good. And so what do you think really went wrong? Would you agree with my assessment or do you feel something else or a combination of multiple things? Well, I think, well, right before you asked myself, asked me that question, I was going to be like, everything that you just said gets touches on different elements of why the show struggled in postseason five. Um, we saw and we saw a lot of um, like, and I referenced um, a couple of not by name, but we we've we saw a number of articles basically bearing the sh- giving obituaries for the show um, this past week as it was coming up on its finale, and there was a lot of chatter and discussion about how Will's death was basically the end of the show in a lot of ways that this was it and for a lot of people it was like for a lot of folks like Will and Alicia were the defining part of the show and I think that's a very good way of looking at the show mainly because it it created different kinds of tension and with Will gone those tensions sort of evaporated um which didn't help but I don't think it hurt the show as much as a lot of other people did um, but I think that your point that there was such a steady build to hitting the fan, which is the season five episode where everything goes, well, hits the fan, um, <laughs> is that that was just driven by such long storytelling and long history. Uh, so like even this idea of them leaving the firm is something that basically starts to percolate back in like red team blue team in season four i mean that's an episode that i initially dismissed way back when it first aired before i was even writing for tv.com and i rewatched it again and just in light of everything that happened in season five and that episode is like pivotal and it's also just really really good i was unnecessarily harsh in that episode but it's really important for this entire thing that they built up to in season five but that's not even discussing like character arcs character relationships that all of that just built into and culminated and then just exploded into this huge virtuoso episode of television and the thing was and this gets to your other point which is that either the kings decided that that kind of stuff was what we liked which it wasn't or the kings saw stuff like scandal or other um fast burning serialized shows and goes oh we can do that Mm -hmm. we should do that um while we're taking knocks at basic cable type stuff and i think that's where maybe these impulses were kind of getting swirled and i think i alluded to that some in season six um when i was talking about the fast burning serialization that the good wife decided it wanted to kind of be scandal a little bit and i don't think that the show understood how to execute that well in a way that allowed for things to have ramifications and to have ripple effects. The thing that The Good Wife kept doing in the Carrie arc, which is where when Carrie doesn't go to jail, basically, um, is for me where the show starts to spiral down. Because even if he's innocent of it and all this sort of stuff, we've built up so much of this idea that he is guilty, that the evidence is against him and so forth and so on that they propose this really big idea and then they back away from it. And that's what they kept doing through season six and a little bit into season seven is that they present this neat idea and then they back away from it because they didn't want to 
mess with the status quo of the show anymore, even though that's exactly what they did in season five, and it's why season five was really exciting, in part because they messed with the status quo, but then they just kind of kept pulling at it so that the status quo went back to where it was. And so any of these big kind of ideas like Alicia becoming state's attorney, Carrie going to jail, Peter being being chosen as president or vice president, and just... <laughs> no, you laugh, but no, that's exactly the thing. Is like, A, Peter was never going to be vice president, let alone president. But the other two aspects, uh, Alicia going to state's attorney's office or um, Carrie going to jail, were things that the show kind of kept saying, no, 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 it's going to happen. And then they'd be like, oh, no, 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 wait, wait, we can't recalibrate the show that much. And then they just had Alicia be off on her own for half of this season, which you and I would joke about in chat that the that clearly Juliana Margulies was the one with the problem with Archie Panjabi um, because no one wanted to work with her. <laughs> and that's why she had just scenes with the new cast member um kush jumbo who's done amazing work this uh for the this throughout season seven she's been a real bright spot in season seven but it was just like no one really wanted to work with her and even alan cumming found a way to not work with her for a little while by bringing up the voicemails and but uh, that was just a joke but it spoke to how isolated alicia had become within her own show and it hurt everyone else so Anytime season seven tried to like integrate the cast or put them together in a courtroom scene, the show started to crackle and you remembered why you liked the show, but Alicia by herself out running an office from her firm with Grace not being in school but helping, you basically just went, oh, this is an okay version of the show, but this version of the show might have been better if she had been in the state's attorney's office and Matan and Geneva were hanging out with her instead. And so it just, they kept pulling back from really good ideas to go back to some very safe area. And I think that caused us to all kind of lose faith. And to your point about narrative propulsion, is that the show just stopped having any because we were just like, oh, right, yeah, no, you're not actually going to commit to any of this, so why should we care? The finale even itself felt so bizarrely like concentrated on alicia's love life in particular and this case in particular you know the the trial that peter was involved in and i think you know maybe transitioning a little bit into the discussion of the finale it did they just have a completely wrong you know they can do whatever vision they want for the show but from our perspective do you feel like they just completely misidentified where the focus should be at the end of the story yes um, I know you want me to elaborate, but <laughs> the immediate answer is yes. Um, in part because, and I've mentioned this in the past two reviews where suddenly Peter's case suddenly gained traction. But since you weren't watching, um, uh, Mr. Shu from Glee comes over to... Um, <laughs> with a beard. He's got a beard, a beard now. Right. No. Uh, so uh, Morrison comes over as ASUA Fox with some weird indictment for Peter. And everyone's just like, well, Peter, you're always being indicted. This isn't a big deal because Peter is always being indicted. <laughs> um, he's the most corrupt man, but yet. <laughs> anyway, so we don't know what he has or what he's coming after Peter for. It could be anything, basically. And it's all stuff that happened off screen during his tenure as state's attorney. And we find that out basically two weeks ago. And like four years ago in story time, like in yeah. 2012, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, he, he like, 
years ago, but we didn't we weren't privy to any of this. It all happened off screen. So this is a plot that they've just completely fabricated, and this trial that they've completely fabricated, which is fine. Peter was off doing his own thing, and that's great. But they just kind of expo dumped a lot of exposition dumped a lot of this stuff basically in a span of an episode and just went, you need to care about this. And I went, uh, no, I, I, I don't. <laughs> and so, so much of this final stretch of the season being about Peter's trial, um, made a very weird shift, um, in regards to that. I feel like the end, the end, end as an episode could have, should, could have, and really should have been the penultimate episode of the season. And, alright, Peter's going to jail, now let's look at the fallout of that, or let's consider what Alicia's life is without this, basically. And, or, well, Peter's actually not going to jail, he's get, getting one-year probation, and he's going to be fine, he's going to write a book, and Alicia's going to get all that pack money, basically. But it's just, this didn't feel like a finale in any weird sense, it basically felt more like, again, going back to the circle and symmetry thing, it felt like them closing a circle. And they very desperately wanted to close that circle in some way. And I wrote about this in the review. Basically, it was just a way for the show to parallel itself some more. So Alicia left a voicemail for Jason in the same way that Will left a voicemail for her, that Eli deleted, and et cetera, et cetera. But then, like, Alicia, Alicia gets slapped by Diane in the same way that Peter got slapped by Alicia in the premiere in basically the same hallway, in the same sort of situation, and for a betrayal, and all this sort of stuff. And the thing is, is just like the Diane betrayal, feeling of betrayal is so justified, but it's not justified within the arc of this episode, within, well, it's justified within the arc of the episode, but it's not justified within the arc of like Diane, basically. And it's just, they wanted so many parallels to show that Alicia had basically become this very horrible human being, which we kind of already knew from season six. And they just kind of doubled down on that in a way that a line from my review that kind of basically sums up how I feel about this finale is that, and I kept cutting it because I couldn't find a good way to work it in, is that Alicia got off worse than Walter White did in the Breaking Bath finale, and Walter White dies in his finale, but he secures his legacy, he gets back at the rich people who screwed him over, he saves Jesse. Sorry for all these uh, Breaking Bad spoilers. Yeah, no, um, so maybe, like, put a spoiler <laughs> warning before this, um, or just cut it out entirely. But basically, Walt is able to do everything that he needed to do for his ego, and then died. Alicia gets nothing, and is basically left alone, and has to basically always just be the public persona now. That's all she has left is her public persona. And there's something really interesting in that idea, but the build-up to that idea just isn't interesting at all. And that's why, for me anyway, that this finale just felt really contrived and forced to get to this point. Even though a lot of the show has been building to this, it wasn't a great way to express it. Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at the episode, if you look at the pilot and then the finale, and you don't really know or appreciate a lot of the things that happened in those like intervening six and a half years you can see the symmetry as you said right that she begins 
the first episode essentially with nothing, right? Like she basically has, as you said in your review, she basically has the kids at home and not a lot else. And she ends this episode with nothing other than, you know, maybe more money than she potentially had before, depending on how much super PAC money comes in, you know, or gets transferred over. And the final scene with her kind of walking back towards the light, kind of readjusting herself is like yet another acknowledgement that, you know, she has done all of the, these horrible things and she's lived through all of these, you know, equally horrible things that have happened to her. But that and, she's also caused. Yeah, that she's also caused and she is going to kind of dust herself off and move, you know, forward. The problem is, is that all of those episodes that happen in between the the pilot and the end, right? And I think that that's, that's the tricky thing that you run into with finales, particularly shows that are so you know, dedicated to building up such a deep in ensemble like this one, right? That this is a show on, you know, even compared to a lot of other shows on broadcast and cable that had such a wide, deep bench of great characters. Right. The only thing that's comparable in terms of characters is maybe game of Thrones. Right. And it just, you know, to then really narrow the focus down um, only to Alicia and it is her show. And it, you you don't want to say, that they just completely should have given like a big sort of losty and send off to everybody singing like Kumbaya essentially. But you just wonder like it wasn't the reason people watch the show wasn't just like to see how Alicia got put through the ringer and how she came out on the other side. Right. There were so many other things kind of happening to the show and that that seemed so important was fine but that there wasn't something else bolstering that or that the other thing that they presented was a completely rushed case and a sudden, not necessarily sudden, but like a very dramatic focus on who she wants to be with romantically. You know, those two things as kind of the support system for this symmetry that they were trying to do just didn't really work as a completely satisfying finale. Right. And I think that a lot of it just has to do with the fact that and this gets back to like our joking that no one wanted to work with her is that because Alicia was so isolated, this idea of betrayal for Diane doesn't make sense because they've barely spoken to each other all season. <laughs> That's where your point is like these characters just aren't important. So this focus on Alicia and Peter and Jason and then the Will ghost, it's felt like a really weird choice to make, especially because... I'm speaking for myself very personally here, but aside from the folks who were really deeply invested in Alicia and Peter, there those this was probably really big for them in terms of watching this marriage play out and the dissolution of it, but how it like went in and out. And so this emphasis of it was probably really interesting and good, and I found it somewhat interesting. It's just, again, there's not enough build-up to it. A lot of it happened really quickly, and... I'm not sure how much of it was them hedging their bets and CBS going, oh, let's do a season eight without the king. One of the th problems with so much of trying to break this down is there's so many things from a production standpoint that we yes that we don't know for sure, right? That we that we and millions of other people have speculated about as far as who likes who, who hates who, what kind of restrictions and handcuffs did they have with certain things. But they self-inflicted. Right, yeah. And so much of that 
it, it has to be real given how the show was at, at one point and how it in like what it turned into right like whether or not whoever's fault it is it doesn't matter all these people are adults and whatever but clearly something and maybe potentially many things happened to the point where this was so clearly an ensemble show and then it sort of drifted away from that where all of the a lot of those people were still on the show but they weren't together on the show and you know the kings might want to argue that that was in some way purposeful because it shows demonstrates like the consequences that alicia has faced for all the things that she did and the sacrifices that she made and the sort of um morally gray decisions that she made and all of those things and you can buy that to some extent but you can also then argue that okay well that made the show while that works in theory that made the show worse right it just made the show worse and so that's that's ultimately kind of how you feel or how i felt about watching the finales like i get it i see what you're trying to do and some of it makes sense in a vacuum but you, it just kind of disregarded so many things that i personally really enjoyed about the show and i think that that weird trajectory will ultimately be more defining for its quote-unquote legacy than maybe it should be yeah, no, I think you're right, is that we're going to remember season five, and then we're going to go, but then the show went kind of downhill. And that's a terrible thing, because it negates basically the previous four seasons. So very quickly, <laughs> we should talk about the, the Will Ghost. Um, yes. You were, uh, you didn't hate it uh, as no, much as maybe you hated some I, of the other things, but so I like, thoughts. I liked, I like seeing Josh Charles on my TV. Yeah. <laughs> and who doesn't? Correct. He's a pretty man. Yes. I, you know, I found it to be okay. I think I had read enough of people's kind of responses to it that I had sufficiently prepared myself to be underwhelmed. And I think it's the same kind of thing with so much of the, the finale in the last few seasons. Like, I get it um, in in complete or completely out of context, just seeing Margulies and Josh Charles back together. Fantastic. Right. Tremendous. But then all you do is spend that time thinking like, wow, well, like, imagine what the last two years of the show would have been like had he stayed. And, you know, all, again, all due respect, he can he is free to leave the show, you know, especially one with this, like, grinding 22 to 23 episode schedule. So, but you just see, like, glimpses of, like, oh, yeah, this is in many ways what I really, really enjoyed about this show. Shipping aside just the two of them, you know, all the history, all of the different relationships and tension and politics between them, um, to then kind of be remember reminded of that in the finale, it's like, oh yeah, this is from a better version of this show. <laughs> I thought he was just gonna like show up for like that first little bit. So did I. With the wine and everything, I was just like, oh, okay, that's nice. That's that's all he would want to do because I mean, he's never bad. I don't think he's ever bad mouthed the show in any way, shape, or form. But like you said, he just he had a shorter contract than any of the other like first season regulars. He had a four season contract. Everyone else had a five. Because he was just like, I want to be done. I know how this goes. I did sports night. And uh, so he just he wanted to be able to do other things. And I get that. And I appreciate that. But that he kept coming back was weird to me. Um, even watching it, I just went, this is, this is very odd. And it, it was odd because she's imagining him telling him telling her what she wants to hear mm -hmm. when she's not talking about the law the whole and um uh, 
woman that you and I both follow, Kristen Warner, who's fabulous, um, on Twitter pointed out, like, I mean, Alicia got her decision tree, basically, which is that episode from season um, five where Will, like, imagines talking to Alicia a lot. That episode's fantastic. But it's also, like, dealing with the law and everything. And so when she's going to him for, like, legal advice, and I like that idea. And I like this idea of her visiting him inside her head, but there's been no indication that she's done it before. And while Luca gave a prompt for it, it was also just like, this is a terrific idea. I wish you guys had just roped him in to do like three episodes in which she thinks of. So the law stuff was fine, but talking about the love life and saying, oh no, I'm cool. I understand that you need to move on. Go be with Jason and leave Peter. It's just like, well, A, Will would say that because Will hates hated Peter. Peter. Yeah. God. Um, but it's also just like, He's inside your head, woman. Right. He's literally a figment of your imagination. Right, and he wasn't even really presenting a counter-argument, right? Right. He was just verbalizing her, balancing the options in her head, and while that's somewhat interesting, like... But it's also very on the nose for this show, which is so subtle about, like, her... her headspace. This is always going to... Like I said in my review, this is going to be a show that I think is... Even if, like I said, that we were just like... Season 5 was really great, and then it kind of went to shit. Is going to be... For me, I'm always going to be like, yes, but let's remember that the show's... And you and I have discussed this, and I've talked your ear off about it in chats. It's just the show's visual language just doesn't get enough credit. Aesthetically, this is a show that figured itself out really, really quickly. If you go back and watch, like, season 1... They figure out a lot of their visual, like, flourishes really early, and that surprised me. So visually, the show is one that doesn't get enough credit for being a really aesthetically interesting show. But it's also just a really thought-provoking, compelling drama as well as the other thing. Like, the, the doldrums of season six and then the kind of inconsistent consistency... Um, consistent inconsistency of season seven is that this was when this show was building basically to season five. It was really sharp. It had funny, insightful things to say about current events. I mean, this is a show that made search, search engine algorithms interesting. This is a show that made Bitcoin, like, decided to talk about Bitcoin when half the majority of our audience probably hadn't even heard of Bitcoin. So this was a show that was very interested in talking about our current day technology uh, from all sorts of different perspectives. And that was really, really interesting and really, really, no other show was doing that, basically. And it wasn't doing it in kind of like a panic mode that Law & Order Special Victims Unit still does. Like, the internet is still this dangerous place. And The Good Wife is like, well, no, it's actually dangerous because the people who run it are dangerous and horrible and capitalistic and greedy. And that's why it's not a great place. And so there's there's an ideology to the show that needs to be acknowledged and needs to be valued. And the show just kind of steadily lost itself in those kind of ways as they kind of shifted focus a little bit. And even then, I mean, they still wanted to talk about the NSA and the surveillance state. And, like, in a really bizarre way of showing people who listen to people. Which is insane, because instead of it being, like, the guy in the office who oversees the computer. And um, this is a thinly veiled person of interest jab, even though I really like person of interest. It's just like, no, the people listening to it are 
geeks who send one another goat videos. And so there's just a whole world that this show built out from its guest stars, its judges, and its cast, and its narrative and its perspective on the world, basically, using Chicago slash New York as a way to explore all these ideas is really what I think the show's legacy should be, is that this was basically the last golden age of television show using scare quotes because golden age of television doesn't exist but this is for me basically the last show of that era and we're gonna maybe forget about it because it was on cbs because it was broadcast and because it didn't go out very well but up until this point this was a really important show and it's why i volunteered to write about it for free for two years is that i thought that this was a really important show within the television landscape and I still think that, even as it kind of floundered at the end. Great show. Despite the yes. ending, as you talked about in your review, and as I always say, bad missteps at the end, problematic finales don't ruin all the good things yes. that happened beforehand. Right. And I've, I've always concurred with that. We put a lot of emphasis on finales, and this was just a – this was not a good finale, but it doesn't negate the fact that the show is good. Yes. So, where can people find you, other than TV.com, of course? Um, I'm at um, I'm on Twitter at NoelRK. There's a button on top of all my reviews. If you just click it, you'll automatically follow me. Um, you can also find me at theteleverse.org, which is the weekly podcast that I do with Kate Kolzik, who writes for the AV Club. Uh, so, that's basically like a two-hour podcast <laughs> about the week in TV that Kate and I do every week. Noel, thank you so much for coming on, and I'm sure that we will have you on, you know, maybe again in a few weeks when all these all these DC shows wrap Ugh. up. I'm sure Tim will be thrilled to talk about those. I cannot wait to listen to Tim's thoughts about Legends of Tomorrow. <laughs> Me too. Thanks again. Thank you. Well, thank you, Corey and Noel, for talking about The Good Wife. Sorry I couldn't join in, that, in on that conversation, but you know what? I've seen probably 15 <laughs> seconds of The Good Wife. I was going to say, I, you made such a huge effort trying to over the uh, over the last seven years of your preparation. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and with no more new shows to talk about or returning shows, we're going to move on to uh, the upfronts because the upfronts are really a big deal in broadcast television. It's when advertisers are wined and dined and showed presentations from the networks to convince them to buy uh, ad space for their upcoming schedule because they do that all of that early. <clears throat> so it's when the networks show off um, their actual schedule they, when they announced their all their cancellations, all their renewals, all the new series picked up, and where everything slots into the schedule. It's one of the bu busiest times of the year for uh, the TV industry, um, and it's also hell for us. Um, but let's let's first of all let's look at some of these pilots that are in contention. I know we talked about the Fox ones. Um, at the top of the show and ABC ordering a designated survivor. But there are a few more shows uh, to go. Um, and I think that, uh, Corey, you and I should just cherry pick a couple that we think sound interesting, that we'd like to see get ordered. And maybe by the time this podcast publishes, they will all be ordered. We don't know. Uh, well, I'll start things off and I'll talk about a little show called uh, Powerless. Can you believe I'm going to go with Powerless first? This is a, an NBC show. 
It is actually set in the DC Comics universe, but it's a comedy. Uh, maybe you've heard about this one. This is the one where it's set in an insurance company. So it's a workplace comedy. And it's all about the employees who work there and deal with a city that is constantly ravaged by the battles between superheroes and supervillains, uh, which probably makes insurance a tricky business. Uh, this has some good geek cred here with Alan Tudyk from Firefly starring Danny Pudi from Community, and of course, Corey, your favorite, Vanessa Hudgens. The uh, most geek cred there is. Like, the superhero genre isn't going to die on television for a while, but I want to see it at least take different shape um so i want to see what it does what uh, nbc can do with a comedy even though it'll probably be bad uh, it has a great cast and it's something new from something that i know i'm gonna get a ton of so i'm i'm interested in it looking over the list that we have here of potential pilots right or potential series there for the first time in a while it feels like there is a litany of like decent comedy options like the last couple of years on broadcast have been pretty bleak as far as like sitcom development goes. And suddenly this year there are shows just full of people that were on comedies that you liked in the last five years. So for instance, CBS, which has not necessarily killed it with comedies that maybe appeal to you or I, uh, they have comedies starring Joel McHale, one starring Matt LeBlanc and Jenna Fisher, one starring Jeff Stoltz from Enlisted, and another one starring Jane Levy from uh, Suburgatory. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, just their four comedies that they have in development, um, or those four at least, uh, have major heavy hitters. They also have a Kevin James sitcom in development. Yeah, I was which, just going to say. Uh, which is probably going to be pretty funny. I mean, yeah. you know, Kevin James, has <laughs> his career has gone certain directions in film, but King of Queens was very good for a very long time. Um so I'm just interested, particularly in the Joel McHale uh, sitcom, which is called The Great Indoors, where an, uh, the logline is an adventure reporter must adapt to the times when he becomes the boss to a group of millennials in the digital department of a magazine. So this basically feels like um, an, it could have been an episode of Community, right? Where, um, which is fine. And it stars Joel McHale, Stephen Fry, uh, McLovin, and a bunch of other people. Um but that has an interesting vibe to it, and it, that doesn't seem like something that would succeed on CBS at all. But uh, it's something that I would definitely like to see the pilot for, and you figure it's something that CBS probably wants to bring to the air just because Joel McHale is someone that people recognize, and that helps today more than maybe even it did a few years ago given how much competition there is. Yeah, in conjunction with this chat we're having, I actually put a story up uh featuring eight pilots that I wanted to see get made. Uh, Great Indoors almost made the list, but my reservation here is that it is a multi-camera comedy, and I know like that shouldn't really uh, make me disregard something off the bat, but CBS multi-camera comedies tend to be a little formulaic and generic, and uh, the idea of it dump coming down to just like, Joel McHale being the adventure reporter and then like talking to people, you know, kids who are on their phone. There's going to be like a million Snapchat Snapchat jokes in the pilot. It worries me a little bit, but yeah, there's a there's a very solid cast here, and obviously we all really love uh, McHale. Yeah, and uh, all all of those comedies that I mentioned actually from CBS are multi-camera, which is crazy. What else appeals to you? Uh, I'm going to go with another. This one is going to be one of those things that I regret saying now. 
But I'm going to go with, oh my god, it's another NBC show. It is called Time. It comes from Eric Kripke, who last bludgeoned us with Revolution. Previous to that, he was the creator of Supernatural and put in five stellar episodes of that show. Uh, this one is about time travel. There you go. I, uh, I like time travel. It's about three people who go through the fabric of space and time and try and stop a bad guy who wants to mess everything up and alter the history of mankind, I think, for his own benefit. It stars 90210's Matt Lanter, Rectifiles Abigail Spencer, who I am pretty much in love with, and Extant Scorn of Vishnitzic. Um, but also, also, thank you, also The Shield, Sean Ryan is on here as, as an executive producer, and he has a good eye for these things. So uh, I'm hoping this is more... You know, season three through five, Supernatural, than any minute of Revolution from Kripke. You know, I think ABC has had a weird year or two, given the different things that have happened kind of behind the scenes. Uh, but they have some things that seem theoretically interesting to me. So one that you mentioned in your story is The Jury, which is a theoretical anthology series, um, which is horribly described as 12 Angry Men meets Serial, <laughs> um, the podcast. But it does star Archie Panjabi and Jeremy Sisto, who are fantastic, although Jeremy Sisto has been better lately in comedy than he has in drama. Um, oh, what was the thing that he was in recently that you hated? Oh, the, uh, the American version of The Returned. Um, yes. Yeah, he was unfortunately in that. But I like the idea of a show that just follows the jury and kind of the development of the jury and their their like tension and all those things and that's certainly something that shows have tried before um even the there was a really great episode of american crime story the people versus oj simpson that was about the jury so i think that that has potential particularly on abc when it can go pretty ridiculous and soapy very quickly um so i'm i'm into that um, I'm going to go with a weird choice here, a little more uh, recognizable, another brand. I think the MacGyver show, the MacGyver reboot, has a chance to be pretty fun and exactly what we want to see CBS doing in terms of going after younger audiences. Um, this is a this is young MacGyver, so I guess it's a prequel to the series you're familiar with or maybe familiar with. Um, stars Lucas Till as young MacGyver, and uh, basically it's about him, you know, coming up with awesome gadgets to get out of sticky situations. And I think now, more than ever, you know, the whole MacGyver theory of uh, using your brain and using simple objects to overcome big problems is going to pop a little better in this day and age of technology where we all know, um, where you just like use your phone for everything. Right, and where something like Mythbusters, for instance, has been a major success for years or whatever, um, that's a potential option. I am skeptical of this because I kind of don't want it to succeed because I think if it the pilot's really good, they probably just cancel Limitless. Um, yeah. And that's not something that I'm into. Um, w let me change gears here a little bit, and we don't want to just go through everything in detail, but what – what network do you think has the biggest holes that can be filled by like the potential pilots that we see here? So whether that means the network that has the most or has the most pilots with the most potential or where you really see looking at a network where they're clearly going to fill like a clear void um, and improve going into next season if these things are good. I think the show with the most, I mean, the network with the most room to move here is Fox, mm -hmm. just because it was, they had such a bad year. 
Um, so you see them, they ordered uh, Lethal Weapon, The Exorcist. Those two already sound better than just about any new show they had last year. Uh, they they need they need help they need anything so anything that is you know if <laughs> second chance is a bar that they have to get over I think they're doing pretty well um, they they should do this should be a, a bigger year for Fox of course it's all relative but they have the most chance for movement uh, especially on the comedy side like you said there there's some good sounding comedies on the Fox side. I keep looking at these ABC shows and so many of them sound interesting and sound so. ABC ish, you know, oh, that's every year with ABC. Yeah, like where it's always something that's like completely ridiculous, but you think, oh, this could be cool, and then you know sometimes they really pop like Quantico, and then sometimes they're terrible like Blood and Oil, you know. And I think that that is something that could be, you know, worth paying attention to with ABC because it seems like in the Paul E era in particular they ordered so many things. And so it was just kind of like, well, one of these nine drama series is bound to hit, right? And then we're doing okay. It seems like they have a fee- a smaller number of, of pilots in development this year. And I don't know what that means as far as what they'll decide to order. Well, let's go the other way and say, uh, let me ask you, which network is in the most comfortable position going into uh, Upfronts? You mentioned it's all relative. I mean, I think if we're if we're going with that then it has to be the CW, right? Because they know now kind of what they do. They brought are bringing back all of their shows. And so for them, it's really just about plugging holes and thinking about how they're going to schedule things over the season. So maybe they move some things to 18 episodes instead of 22 or something like that, or they do more year-round scheduling where – something doesn't come back until January and then runs all year, you know, um, which they've done with things like the hundred before, but they mostly spread their big shows all out. So if they pick up a few things, then will they decide to, you know, hold vampire diaries and the originals, for instance, until January and then run them as final seasons of both or something like that. You know, there's, there's some of those strategic things that they may consider their pilots don't sound particularly good. Uh, but that's okay because everybody likes most of the shows they have now. So I figure one or two of these probably comes on the air. It seems like they're really invested in the frequency pilot, which is sort of weird given that it's based on a 1996 movie that just was okay. Um, but <laughs> Most of CW's audience wasn't even alive to watch it. Yeah, so I think that that's something to consider. But I think that they're probably in the best shape. What would your answer be? You know, CBS, which is kind of in the same boat as the CW where they don't have as many holes to fill. So that's why you see them, you know, waiting on limitless. Like if you have limitless there and you're deciding whether or not that's going to come back because you need to look at your, the rest of your development slate, then you're in pretty good shape. I mean, I think Fox would kill for something like limitless. Um, so they have, you know, and they, they have a pretty good idea of what they want and what works for them that they can, pick and choose the right shows for them instead of, you know, going with a big risk, which is not really paying off most of the time for networks like Fox or ABC. And that's our upfront summary. Uh, come to TV.com now next week. We'll have all kinds of news 
as everyone uh, shores up their schedules. Uh, probably even starting at the end of this week, we'll be very busy. Uh, let's move on to questions from our listeners, which is always my favorite part of the podcast. Uh, first, we'll start off with Mogul Fierro, who asks, Guys, what do you think of this new trend with the after-show shows? I'm talking about After the Thrones or Talking Dead, for example. Have you ever watched them? Do we really need these with so many sites and podcasts? My answer, if you didn't guess it, is no. Um, I'm, well, I, I would say, so I watch Walking Dead... Um, I watch screeners of Walking Dead, so I don't always, I'm not always just there to, to stick around to watch uh, Talking Dead. But every once in a while, I'll t- tune, in, tune, in, tune in to Talking Dead. Maybe like out of the eight episode half seasons, maybe just twice in case uh, something big happens. Like when the, the whole Glenn mess, I wanted to see what, uh, yeah, what they Kirkman say. said. Um, but for most of those, I don't just because I'm inundated with so much talk um, online all the time. Uh, however, I think they're somewhat valuable, and I think business-wise, they're fantastic for uh, for networks. Like, if you can just put in five thousand dollars for an episode of Talking Dead, then that's that's great. And that's and you know you've seen Talking Dead actually do really well. I think it was like the fifth highest rated cable show of last year, which is just ridiculous, especially considering it costs nothing to make. So I, whereas I don't use them personally all the time, I have yet to check out After the Thrones. I was meaning to actually to watch that today. Um, but I just, you know, I, I don't really personally get a lot of them, but they're fu- they're fine to have, especially for big shows. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's one of these things where, like, I don't particularly enjoy them, but it's they're not so egregious that I'm mad that they exist. You know, the good thing about the way TV exists now is that we don't really have to pay attention to it if we don't care. I find Talking Dead to be totally fine. You know, I think uh, people make fun of Chris Hardwick. We've certainly made fun of Chris Hardwick before, but he he's fun. He's fun to be around. I think if there were somebody else hosting that show, I think Talking Dead would be dramatically worse than it actually is. Um, and I think talking dead is now it's been around long enough that it would feel weird without it i i don't think there are many shows that need them other than the walking dead and i think having one for game of thrones is fine because as we often talk game of thrones and walking dead are kind of the two big tentpole shows on tv so i guess it makes sense enough that those would be the two that have shows like this like i think when there was one did they do talking saw this year yeah, I think they did it for the premiere and the finale. Only. Yeah, and I feel like that's fine, but doing it every week for that show seems silly. Um, so, I don't know. I watched the first two episodes of After the Thrones, and I am a big fan of Chris Ryan and Andy Grunewald's podcast that they've done. I like them as writers and everything like that. I found After the Thrones to be pretty bad. Um, you know, there's a huge difference, as I said, between having Chris Hardwick host the show and then having people who are critics and bloggers suddenly be on camera and have to host a show, right? And so I think that that's not really an indictment on them. It just shows that there's not really a utility for these things. And it was very recappy. So, you know, Talking Dead doesn't really hit every key point of the episode. They bring on people, they make jokes, they do highlight packages, that kind of thing. And After the Thrones, at least in the two episodes I saw, was very much... Let's go over what happened. And so that's kind of the difference between like like a recap versus Price's photo recaps almost. You know, like that's kind of what it felt like. And so if you really want someone to tell you what happened on Game of Thrones, sure. 
But if you want someone to kind of have fun with what you just saw on Walking Dead, then there's Talking Dead, you know? Yeah. And does After the Thrones have guests on it, or is it just the two of them? It's the two of them, and then it's also um, Jason Concepcion uh, or Network on Twitter, who's like uh, the – they call him the maester. He's like the big Game of Thrones fan. He explains things. And then Mallory Rubin, who is also an editor – uh, you know, talent for the for Grantland now the Ringer. Um, so it's basically just their staff so far. Yeah, I think having the actors on or the writers adds an ins an insight that you can't really get. Um, which which makes something like Talking Dead more valuable. The other thing about these things is you need to air them right after the episode. Like you can't like after the Thrones airs the following day. Um, I think Orphan Black had one. And I don't know, was that the one you had to go online for? I don't know, there's some where you have to go online for. Like, I think the, they did the Sons of Anarchy one, you had to go online for it. And to me, that just doesn't work as well as, you know, not changing the channel. Like, if you have Chris Hardwick saying, hey, like, right right now, we're going to talk about, uh, you know, Brand's flashback visions. Um, then that's something that's more interesting than, like, pulling out your laptop and trying to find something well and that also speaks to the value of doing it on a channel that has ads right so there are act breaks on walking dead so that when someone dies then amc can inappropriately insert uh like a wild chris chris hardwick where he's like hey guys we're gonna talk about that person who just got their head ripped off um which people have complained about but on hbo you can't do that you can't suddenly insert 30 minutes into the episode have chris ryan and andy greenwald sitting there in the warehouse being like you know, tonight on After the Thrones, we tell you what's going to happen or what happened. And so I think that that's also kind of an interesting wrinkle that you couldn't necessarily replicate even the wraparound experience that Talking Dead provides because HBO is a subscription, like, on-demand sort of service now more yeah. than ever. Uh, thank you for the question, Mogul Firo. Next, we'll move up to uh, Kenny S. I'll just say Kenny S because I'm not going to try that last uh, name, which has only one vowel in it. I don't even – Yeah. Whew. Anyways, with all the options TV has given us these days, I'm shocked that I binge through The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills as fast as wa- I watch things like Breaking Bad or Orange is the New Black. Can you guys think of a reason these shows are so popular, and do you have similar experiences with similar shows? Wow. Binging through The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Does that mean you let them uh, stockpile up and then you went through them, or are you talking about watching them timely in uh, every week? I want to know the answer to that. It could also be, because a lot of these things are on Netflix now, it could also be never watched it before and then just started from the beginning on Netflix and powered through them. Wow. Or real quick, before we answer your question, uh, with reality shows, is do you find them to be – can you go back to them and watch them? Like could you right now watch like the second season of Jersey Shore if you had never seen it before? Ugh. I, I mean, feel like they're so like zeitgeisty. Like, yeah, if you, I think if that the, no one's talking about it, you don't watch it ever. There are certainly some that you could, right? I think maybe something like Real Housewives is a little—I hate saying this—a little <laughs> more timeless, where it's not as connected to like a certain cultural moment because it's now been on the Real Housewives franchise has now been on for long enough. But I think a lot of them, if you've ever watched them before going back and watching again or watching seasons that you may have missed also is weird. Um, But yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it depends. I think you could do something like if you've never seen Survivor, you could start from the beginning and watch Survivor, right? Because it is zeitgeisty, but it's also, you know, the show evolves, but the, the format is there. So you could pick random seasons of Survivor and just go. But I think things that are a little more zeitgeisty are harder to do. But 
have you ever binge watched a reality show in your life? No, not that not one that wasn't currently on the air, and where I had just like a couple episodes, episodes yeah. to watch a week. I used to watch them on like Hangover Saturdays. Um, but let's answer the question, which is: Can you think of a reason why these shows are so popular? And do you have similar experiences with these shows? We answered the second part, but the first reason the first reason I think is because sometimes our brains just need a rest. Uh, if you're watching stuff like Breaking Bad, or if you're watching The Wire, or Game of Thrones, like it's it's mentally mentally taxing to watch all these shows. So I think you know there were re- there was reasons why I was really excited for the real world skeletons that when that season came out because I just wanted something easy that I didn't really have to pay attention to and I could just watch and lay down on the couch and sort of enjoy. These the current era of reality shows is like in many ways smarter and more self aware than ever. So something like The Real Housewives um, has kind of evolved over its duration to constantly respond to culture, but also the way people talk about it, the way people get obsessed with it and those kind of things. So they stay interesting enough to keep you involved. Like they cycle through cast members or whatever. And I think that that's important um, as far as why we would continue to watch them. And I mean, I think, you know, a lot of it is if we're talking about the housewives franchise or the Kardashians, you know, there's this weird combination of, envy and like disgust right like we hate these people but we would love to have as much wealth as them um you know we grow emotionally attached to some of them in the same way we do fictional characters even though you know what that we see on these reality shows is essentially scripted um so i think it's a lot of the same stuff that we care and invest in you know shows that we would say are quote-unquote better combined with what you said that it's much easier to watch it's easier to turn your brain off all of those things so i think that's also why it's probably super easy to binge watch something like this because you don't have to put in like this psychological and emotional and intellectual, you know, brain power just to pay attention. You can just turn it on and do so many other things and just keep going through episodes. Yeah. And like you were talking about the characters in this show, they are they're actually interesting. Maybe not someone you like, but they're interesting. You know, we may all have friends in our lives who are train wrecks. But we like we're fascinated in what they're going to do, but we don't necessarily want to have that two-way relationship with them. Uh, you kind of get this. This is kind of a surrogate for that kind of stuff, uh, like the Real Housewives, where you just you can just watch insane people do their thing, even if they're acting it up. They're actually at least interesting on a uh, very very basic level. Mm-hmm. So yeah, very very easy to take in. So I, that's I think that's why that's why they're interesting. That's why, that's why, Kenny, you watched all of The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. I'm very impressed with you. Uh, thank you guys for your questions. As always, if you have them, leave them in the comments. Put a question mark at the end of a sentence, and we will answer it the next week. Corey, I think you have some uh, podcast details to tell us about. Of course, you can find Totally Tubular at TV.com. We're always there on the homepage. You can also find us by going to the news page and clicking the podcast tab. The last 10 or 15 episodes will be there. We're on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash tv.com. The dot is spelled out. We're on iTunes. We're on Stitcher. We're on Google Play, Podcast, Music, whatever it's called. Uh, We're on Downcast, Overcast. Anywhere you can find a podcast, you should be able to find Totally Tubular. Thank you, as always, for listening, commenting, tweeting, all of those great things. Thank you. Uh, Next week should be a big one. We'll have all the Upfronts news that uh, has come out so far. Plus, we have Preacher. That's going to be a very fun conversation between the two of us, I think. Um, I've seen the first two episodes. Oh, that's rude. 
I did. I watched the first two episodes. Uh, we also have uh, Maria Bamford's Lady Dynamite on Netflix. Why mm. we get screeners? That one sounds really good. And uh, maybe we'll get to Wayward Pines, which came, is coming back for a miracle second season. Uh, thank you all for listening, and we'll talk to you in about seven days.